Uh, I can't remember if I was by myself or what, but anyway, met with Greg Childress earlier, maybe a couple months ago, uh, talking about something we'll, we'll mention here near the end of service. I said, man, I am really enthusiastic about this. He said, we prayed you'd be enthusiastic. <laughs> that was the key, the key word. I almost thought I heard Randy say, read your Bible. I don't know, is that me or am I putting words in his mouth? Uh, what a great reminder. You know, we take God's Word seriously here. That's if you, if you go away from Lion and Lamb, you probably heard read your Bible at least once. And it's serious because we understand God speaks truth to us through His Word, and Jesus is made real to us through His Word. That's how that happens. But also what Randy talked about, and guys, this is something we pray about as leaders in this church. We, I love our church family. And when you come here, the buzz on Sunday morning, because there are people that are vital Christians interacting with each other, which you love. You almost hate to start the service because it's such a happy time going on. But one of the things we've talked about and prayed about is we want to see more folks coming to faith. We want to see more people coming into the kingdom. We want to see more baptisms. We want to see more young folks baptized and begin that process of discipleship coming into the growth of becoming more like Christ. We want to see that. We pray about that. So I think this was God's timing for us in connecting with the Gideons again, and the program we'll mention at the end, but, but not only reading the Word for ourselves, the Word of life, but also introducing others to Christ through the Gospel and doing so through Gideon New Testaments is an easy way to do that. Again, we'll talk more about that at the end of the service. Okay, so they're right up our alley. Evangelism and God's Word is right where we want to live. So thanks for that again, Randy and Greg. Appreciate you both. Hey, with that, I usually have a funny or uh, embarrassing or something introduction to the message. I have no such thing this morning. I'm trying to to spare you guys uh, running way, way over time. So, Bible, Second Peter, you can open those now if you've got them. Second Peter 3, we'll be in verses 1 through 10. I'll read from the ESV. If you use a pew Bible, it's page 1019. Guys, we just finished a five-week series, Parables of Jesus. That was the Elder series this fall. Before that, we were in Second Peter. We've made it through the first two chapters of a very short letter, but we'll conclude, God willing, this morning and then next week in 2 Peter 3, and as we read through this, I'll point out, but I want you to sort of be poised to be thinking in terms of the way Peter breaks out his points here. Verses 1 through 3, he's going to tell his audience, he calls them his beloved, which is a lovely thought, not just friends or brothers and sisters, but folks that he knows and loves. He says, you know something, don't forget it. That's the first part of the text. Then he says, relating to mockers and scoffers, he says, they know something, but they choose to overlook it. And then the conclusion in the text we'll be in this morning is, don't be like them. Don't overlook what you know. So 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 10, I'll start. We'll make a few comments on the way, and then we'll get into the comments proper. So 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Beloved not by God alone, but by Peter and others as well. He said, in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. So everything's hearkening back. You know something. I'm reminding you of what you already know. Remember the predictions of the holy prophets. That would be the Old Testament. The commandment of the Lord and Savior 
think of the Gospels, and then through your apostles, think of the New Testament, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So, that's, you know some things. Now he shifts gear. Now he says, speaking to them about the scoffers and the mockers, they, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, and the use of the term fathers there is interesting. It may indicate that Peter's actually thinking of Jews. You know, for the Jews, the patriarchs would have been the fathers. It would have been a little unusual for uh, Gentiles generally to have used that term. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, way back, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of those, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And he turns his attention back to them. Verse 8, But to you, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed or laid bare. Everything will be seen as it really is. So going to verses 1 through 3, we know some things. You guys know when we talk about, and Peter's talking about a future day, so we would say this is prophetic scripture, it's eschatology. If you talk in language of prophetic scriptures, things yet to come, you might think in the term or the phrases of Jesus, the signs of the times. If you listen to anybody on the radio, I think there's a program called the signs of the times. Matter of fact, usually if we're thinking about something related to Jesus' second coming to the earth, We're thinking about things like those expressed in Matthew 24, I think Mark 13, Luke 21. Things like wars and rumors of war and famines and pestilence and false prophets and eventually Antichrist. But Peter says here there's another thing that should be part of that list, part of the sign of the times that the second coming is approaching. And he says here that it's mockers and scoffers are one of the key indications that Jesus' second coming is real and it's coming and it's not going to be delayed by their unbelief. That to wars and rumors of wars and other things, the very mocking notion of Jesus, his person, his work, or his return, those, those mocking inferences are in themselves an indication that Jesus' second coming is around the corner. So Pete says, when you hear... Or hear or see the naysayers scoffing, don't worry, don't be upset. And it's been a long time and it hasn't happened and maybe it won't. He says, no, they in and of themselves are an indication of Jesus' coming. It's interesting too, if you go back, you don't have to turn there, but Genesis 19, the notion of the, the message, the response to the message that Jesus is coming, it's coming again, second coming, and he's bringing judgment with him. 
that the notion that the response to that message is mocking is illustrated in Genesis 19. Guys, if this keeps up, I'll use the other mic. Should I just do that? Okay, thanks. Um, Genesis 19, you remember, uh, God had met with Abraham in Genesis 18. And he said, hey, you know, the cities of the plain, not a good thing. We're sending some, some of my two men down there, some angels. They're going to verify facts, and, and I'm going to destroy the five cities of the plain. So remember, the angels go to Sodom, and Lot takes them in. He says, you're not safe here. Come to my home. I'll take care of you. And you remember, as the men of the city come around his house that night to abuse these two angelic messengers, they, those messengers tell Lot, hey, just FYI, we're here to destroy your, your home. This city is going down in smoke. And so do you remember what happens that as the men of the city are outside his door trying to break in to abuse these angels, in that company there are two men that are engaged to his two daughters. And do you remember that Lot tells them, guys, judgment's coming. This city's going to be destroyed. And do you remember, do you remember their response? They thought he was joking. Now they're gone the next day. In the fiery judgment of God, fire and sulfur raining down on heaven, they're gone the next day because they thought it was a joke. They thought this serious, life-ending message of judgment was a joke and they perished the next day in the fires that destroyed Sodom. I had a friend who years ago had a friend, he was an evangelist, and he was on a college campus, and he befriended a young guy, and they were talking about the gospel. The guy had not come to faith, but they were talking about the gospel. And this new friend of his invited him to, to a bash, to a beer bash on the college campus. And my friend said, uh, I'd love to come if I can share the gospel. And the guy said, okay, okay. So he shows up at the beer bash, and the beer is flowing, and it's a college party of a bunch of guys, yahoos, just like I was before faith, right? And in the midst of the, the beer flowing and the bash is rolling on, he gets up and proclaims the gospel clearly. Now, can you imagine what the first response was? They were laughing because they assumed it was a joke, just like those guys in Sodom. And as he kept going on, they realized this was legit. This guy was serious about a real God, real judgment, real salvation, real destruction. And so after the laughter, they asked him, please sit down and stop. And that's, that's sort of what Peter is saying here. To the message of the reality of Christ and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the return, the promised return of Jesus and the judgment that accompanies it, this, there's this worldly response of mocking, of unbelief, of making a joke of it. But Peter's point is the joking and the mocking can't stop the reality of the message and the return. In fact, I like to think of it this way. You guys, some of you have chickens. Do you have roosters? You know what roosters do in the morning, guys? Before the sun comes up, it's still dark. This raucous crowing precedes the sunrise. And these mockers, they're like dumb roosters. They don't know that their mocking is just like a rooster and the sun is going to rise and the day is going to come. And that's language and imagery out of Malachi 4. The son of righteousness rises on one hand with healing in his wings, but Peter says, and with judgment also. 
So he, don't, don't be put off by the mockers, he says, because it's still going to happen. And by the way, they're very mocking. Their presence as scoffers is a reminder of the promise of Jesus to return and that he'll return not only in power and glory, but in judgment as well. Uh, look at verse 4 to 7. They're overlooking something. They're overlooking a couple of different things. The reality of God's past judgment in the flood and the certainty of God's future judgment at Christ's coming. Uh, we, we looked at this and we talked about this, but it's several weeks ago. So this was the theme in chapter 2 as well. Uh, why would I want to look back and say the worldwide flood never happened? Or why would I want to look back in history and say uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah never happened? Um, and there's, there's other reasons than, than this one. But guys, if I don't want to believe there's a future judgment for my sin, then it'd be convenient to say there's been no past judgment against sin either. And that's what we talked about in chapter 2. There's a, there's a motivation to say something like God's judgment in the flood didn't occur because I don't want to anticipate the reality of a future judgment on sin as well. It's convenient to say no flood, no Sodom, no Gomorrah, if I want to say, and there's no future judgment for my sin, living my life on my own either. But the flood is a reminder of the reality of God's commitment to send Jesus back to the earth. And guys, I'll say this before I forget. When Christians talk about whatever your eschatology is and the connection or disjoint between the rapture and the second coming, Christians look forward to both. Because we understand that at the rapture, we, we're with Jesus forever. And if that's seven years before the second coming or it's simultaneously with, we get, hey, that's a good day. God calls us up. Our sinful self is gone. Our glorious self is present, perfect forever with Christ forever. That's a good day. And when Jesus gets his throne on earth, that's a good day. So we understand there's blessing associated with the rapture and the second coming for sure. But what Christians often overlook is what Peter's highlighting. There's judgment when the king returns to his rebellious planet and puts down rebellion. And that's Peter's point in 2 Peter 3. The sun does rise with righteousness and healing, but he's also coming with judgment because he's coming to a world that has refused him. So that's another important part of what he's communicating. Listen to it. I've just got a couple of examples. And psalm 2 is one of those. I'm not going to quote it this morning, but it's a messianic psalm. And it says you better kiss the sun while there's time. And that means you submit to the king or you're going to regret it later. This is another messianic psalm, Psalm 110. By the way, this psalm is quoted more than any other Old Testament passage in the New in part, it says, verses 5 and 6, The Lord is at your right hand, speaking of the Messianic king. God, through the Messiah, will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is the judgmental, destructive element of the second coming of Jesus. Isaiah 66, 15 and 16, Behold, the Lord will come in fire. Yahweh, people say Jesus didn't claim to be God or the Bible doesn't claim Jesus to be God. Yahweh, Messiah is Yahweh. Isaiah 66, 15, Behold, Yahweh will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury 
his rebuke with flames of fire. By fire will the Lord, that's all caps in your Bible, that means it's Jehovah or Yahweh, it's God himself. For by fire will Yahweh enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. You remember in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes personally to the earth, what does he do to destroy the armies that are arrayed against him in Jerusalem? It says it's the sword of his mouth. Same, same imagery here. By his sword with all flesh, those slain by the Lord, by Yahweh, shall be many. He's bringing death and destruction with him to this rebellious planet. Malachi 4, last book in the English arrangement of the Old Testament, ends on that same note of second coming. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all evildoers will be stubble. You guys ever seen the Flint Hills in the spring when they burn off the fields? Well, this is like it's a dry spring, and Jesus is a blowtorch, and that grass, it just, it's inflamed as soon as he arrives. All the arrogant, all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, the destruction, the judgment will be total, just like the cities of the plain. If you move to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 8, by the way, 2 Thessalonians is one of the most overlooked books in all the Bible, and it is one of the most graphic related to the second coming. Uh, Paul writes there, uh, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They do not obey the gospel. Uh, guys, we often think of the gospel as a nice invitation to a lovely life. And it is. It's a, it's a lovely invitation to a much better life. Abundance of joy, abundance of life. That's the gospel, John 10. But guys, this is the other thing that I think we forget, and certainly the world does not recognize. The gospel is a command to the world to repent and trust Jesus, to accept Jesus as Savior and King. That's out of Acts 17.30. Do you remember Paul there in Athens at Mars Hill? Do you remember in part what he said was, God is overlooking the days of ignorance. The days of ignorance are over. And now he's proclaiming to all men everywhere that they repent. It's a command. And that's Peter's emphasis here. The world is under command since the resurrection of Jesus from the grave to repent and through Messiah to be in right relationship with the Father again. It's not just a lovely invitation. It's a command. So when Jesus returns in judgment, he is judging those who have refused to repent before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the thought here. They overlook the reality of Jesus' return in judgment. You see this too, the end of this heaven and earth by fire. Mark 13, 31 We'll talk a little bit more about how Peter's uh, consolidating some thoughts. But so judgment, personal judgment on people and nations comes in Jesus' second coming. That's one level. But also the heaven and earth itself is also going to be consumed in Jesus' fiery judgment. 
Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will not pass away. 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12, we'll look at this, Lord willing, next week. Uh, all these things are thus to be dissolved, uh, rendered, uh, pour acid on something, reduce it to its elemental basis. That's what he's saying. The coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavens and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. That in some significant way, I don't, don't quite know what this looks like. It doesn't say that God's um, taking matter and decreating matter, but it's being reduced to its most fundamental, elemental level. Romans 21, or excuse me, Revelation 21, 1, we know there's a new heaven and a new earth, so the old one went away. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea is no more. Uh, for imagery's sake, um, Father Abraham was buried, let's say, 4,000 years ago. Where is, where is that body today? It's probably dust, maybe water. You know, it was in a cave and maybe beetles ate part of the bones or, you know, maybe it just slowly disintegrated. Maybe some water got in there, washed. If you went to find Abraham's body today, you're not going to find it, right? And, and many, many, many people, many people through the ages, if you said we're going to reconstitute their body and you went to do it, you'd say, well, I can't do it because I can't find it. But we know that there's continuity between the body that we plant in the ground like a seed, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, and the glorious body that is raised. So, you know, in 1 Thess 4, when Jesus comes down, there's a resurrection of folks that have died. Their souls were in heaven, but they didn't have their glorified body. There's continuity. Even if we can't find Father Abraham, he's getting a new body. And there's continuity between the one that went in the ground and the glorified one that comes out. That same thing is going to happen with the earth. Romans 8 says, do you remember this? The creation itself is groaning. You remember the earth, the heavens and the earth in creation, everything was only very good until sin. And then because of sin, humans who were the lords under God over the earth, they fell. And because they fell, their kingdom fell. The earth was subject to sin and death because of the fall of mankind. But Romans 8 says the creation itself is anticipating the glorification of the sons of God so that when this, this heaven and, and this earth get burned up, there's somehow there's a continuity between this heaven and earth as it is and the glories of the new heaven and a new earth just like our bodies so that God's original creation both in his image bears humanity and in the kingdom he had put them over they're going to be destroyed, if you will, but they're going to be raised back up in glory. There's continuity between both individual bodies and the new heaven and new earth to come. So just as surely as God's word to Noah regarding the destruction of the earth by water was fulfilled, God's promised judgment at Jesus' second coming and the destruction of the world as we know it is coming for sure. If you look at verse 5, uh, Peter uses a word that's important. How can these guys negate the reality of, of history, of God's word, of Christ's resurrection? How can they do this? Verse 5 says, they deliberately overlook God's word. They deliberately overlook God's word. This is not an issue of information. 
This is not an issue of naivete. This is an issue of the will. These people choose to overlook the reality of what God did in the past and the reality of the future fulfillment of his promises because they don't want it. It's an issue of the will. I think your study sheet has a couple of examples where that same word, thello, in the Greek is used. Matthew 119, Joseph wasn't willing to put Mary to shame. She's pregnant, not with his baby. He's not willing. He won't do it. It's against his will. He won't do it. In Luke 5, verses 12 and 13, a leper wants, wants to be healed, same word, and Jesus is willing to cleanse him. That's the thought. It's not information. It's the will. They don't want the implication of past judgment because they don't want the implication of future judgment. You know, even really smart people can be really dumb. Yeah, yeah, you can't fix stupid. <laughs> we're good, we're good. <laughs> you know, Romans 1, verses 18 through 21, they say essentially the same thing, you can't fix stupid. You know, they say, Paul there says, you know what, everybody knows there's a God. How does that work? Well, because by the very creation that we see, that we live in, and the fact that we're God's image bearers, we know that someone created this world. We know that, Paul says. He says we know that someone is different than us and above and, and separated from his creation, greater than creation. But he also says this, that men knowing that turn away from that reality and that truth. They get stupid and they get dumb because they don't want the implications. And they turn to some, some kind of idolatry, one form or another. But what they're doing is they're embracing something else because they don't want the truth that there's a creator that I'm responsible to. And that's the same thing here. People who negate the gospel, the validity of the gospel, the truth claims of the gospel, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the resurrection, the second coming, that all all of life and all of humanity ultimately gives an account to Jesus Christ, that denial is based on the fact that they don't want it. That's what Peter says. It's a decision of the will. Listen to this too from Proverbs 8. You know, Proverbs is a great book and on the opening nine chapters, it's an, invi it's an invitation to wisdom and to life through the fear of God, through the knowledge of God. And chapter eight's winding down a section in which a dad's making an appeal to a son and wisdom itself is personified as a woman who's been giving invitations. Come to my house, I'll give you wisdom, you'll get life. But listen to how chapter 8 ends. Wisdom says, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, from Yahweh. That's a good thing. But he who fails to find me injures himself. Now listen to this, all who hate me, wisdom, love death. All who hate me, wisdom, the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of the Lord, the gospel, love death. Now, if you asked a person who rejects the gospel and said, do you really love death? I'm sure they wouldn't say yes. But the implication is you are choosing death. You want death because you're choosing it, because you're choosing against God, against Christ, and against the gospel. 
So Peter is speaking of those who reject the gospel and therefore also reject other points of truth. I want to just say very briefly, this could easily be a bunny trail and I'll keep myself brief. Is it possible for Christians to read God's word and determine it doesn't mean what it says? So it's easy if I look out there and I say, man, they reject the gospel. They don't get it, do they? But I wonder if it's possible for us to do the same thing dynamically. Let me just give you a few examples. Professing Christians committed to the concept of life by way of evolution reinterpret texts on creation. Guys, there's a brand new book out. It's by a well-known evangelical apologist. It's and I think it's just published, just published, academic. He's debated atheists around the world. His conclusion about the reality of Adam, because this is a big deal, right? Is there a real Adam? Theologically, you've got to have a real Adam or you don't have a real second Adam. He says, you know, there's a real Adam, and he lived 750,000 to a million years ago, and his line died out. He wasn't homo sapien. He was homo something else. Because, see, his, his philosophy won't allow Genesis 1 and 2 and up through 11 and 20. It won't allow the text to mean what it says. It won't allow it. And that's true of Christian academics all over the world. Christians committed to feminism, and I'm qualifying feminism here. Feminism as being opposed to what God says in Scripture to men and women as men and women. You have to reinterpret those texts so that they can't say God's called for men to lead in the homes and in the church. Because philosophically, we, we won't go there. So it can't mean that. Also, guys, and especially on younger generations, Christians supporting same-sex unions and alternative lifestyles and sexuality have to reinterpret texts on sexuality, identity, the very nature of God that we possess, and marriage itself because you can't get there otherwise biblically. But if you look at the surveys, lots of professing Christians think same-sex marriage or union is okay. Well, you can't get there biblically. Professing Christians can do the same thing the mockers do if we're not willing to live subject to what God has said is true, that this is the way it is. The tendency to overlook, reinterpret, and ignore what we don't like in God's word isn't relegated only to those outside the faith. We can do the same thing. Uh, look at verses 8 through 10. He's talking back to his beloved friends again. He's, he's turned away from the mockers. He's talking to his friends again and says, don't you do what they did. They knew something. They chose to overlook it. They chose to say, no, thank you. We don't agree with that. He says, don't you do that. Remember that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he's patient. But the day of the Lord will Come, the day of the Lord will come. Peter is painting with a really, really, really broad brush here. It's because he's singularly addressing one and only one point. But let me, let me, let me frame this this way. He, Peter's saying God's ta timetable isn't yours. It isn't ours. You know, that's why we're saying, well, why not, why not already? Why hasn't it happened? They were asking that then. We're 2,000 years later. You know, we're asking the same question, Lord, how long? That's one thing. But he also says the certainty, the day of the Lord is really going to come. 
If you want to develop your eschatology, your understanding from the Bible about the last days, how, how, how does life on planet Earth wind down? 2 Peter 3 is not the place to go because Peter's not trying to address that. He's singularly addressing one slash two key points. Jesus is coming. He's coming again in the second coming, and he's bringing judgment with him. And when Peter's talking about the reality of Jesus coming back to the earth and judgment with him, he makes one theme, one thought, Jesus' second coming with judgment, and he throws in the, the end of the heavens and the earth as we know them in this fiery judgment. He's not trying to address the points of chronology that you'll read about in 1 Corinthians 15, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, Revelation 19, Revelation especially, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. He's not giving us any point by points. He's simply talking about the reality of the second coming and judgment and the end of life as we know it in God's judgment. That's the only point he's trying to cover because it's the theme that they're being cornered with. It's the challenge. His friends that he's addressing in this letter, that's the thought they're being challenged with. So it's the only one he's covering. When we develop our theology about chronology and events, we don't do it out of 2 Peter 3 because that's not what he's giving us. So if I just read it and I say, Jesus' second coming, he comes, he judges, and he burns up the earth. And I say, well, what about all the promises in the Old Testament that death will take a holiday and Messiah reigns in Jerusalem and a person who dies at 100 is thought of judged by God because men will wear out the work of their hands. There's no place for it. Peter's not talking about those things. He's only talking about the consummation ultimately in judgment for both humanity and for this earth based on Jesus' second coming. So he says, the day of the Lord is coming. I'm not giving you the chronology, but I'm giving you the reality. And guys, day of the Lord is a, is a key phrase, theologically. It's a big phrase in the Bible, and it's used a bunch of times. Let me just give you a couple of examples. It always includes the thought of judgment. It may also include the thought of blessing, but it always includes the thought of judgment. In fact, I didn't look this up. I think it's Hosea, but I might be wrong. It's one of the minor prophets anyway. The prophet says to the people, you're, you're crying out for the day of the Lord. And he says, you don't get it. The day of the Lord is darkness. It's not light. It's judgment. They're like, oh, come on, bring the day of the Lord. He's like, slow down. You may not like it when you get it, when you see it. So slow down, be careful. But listen to this, Isaiah 13, the day of the Lord is God's judgment against Babylon by the Medes. And also, if you read that text, it looks like it probably speaks beyond that historic past tense occurrence to future judgment as well. It's, so the Medes in the day of the Lord are going to be judged, or excuse me, the Medes are going to be used by God in the day of the Lord to judge the Babylonians. Jeremiah 46 Egypt's destruction in the day of the Lord at Carchemish by the Babylonians. Ezekiel 30, Egypt and her allies in the day of the Lord, destroyed by Babylon. Go to Joel, it's used five times, eight more times in the Minor Prophets, concluding with Malachi 4 verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is interesting, you guys know if you read in the Gospels, the disciples and one of the synoptics says, hey, we thought Elijah was coming first. You're, you're the Lord. Where, where's Elijah? And Jesus, you remember, says, 
Elijah did come, and they rejected him. John the Baptist was the one that came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But he also says, and Elijah will come, future tense. Just as Jesus has a second coming, Elijah has a second appearance, if you will. So he's going to come before the awesome day of the Lord. So Peter says, don't overlook, don't forget, Jesus will return to judge the earth in his glory. That's against the tide of anybody else's opinion. It's still going to happen. Don't overlook God's uh, patience. This is where we'll wind down, guys. Uh, on prophecy, do you not find that we're often like the kids who know Christmas is coming and they want to unwrap the presents on Thanksgiving to see what they're going to get on Christmas a month later? We're like that, I think, on prophetic things. Lord, I've read it, but I don't understand how it really looks. You know, unwrap that for me. Show that to me. So when it comes, I've already seen it. And God doesn't do that for us. But he does explain a key point here. Why hasn't Christ already come again to set up his kingdom on the earth? That's the question Peter raises. What, what's the delay? And that's what the mockers will say. Hey, life just, just strolls along just the way it's been. He said he was coming, but he hasn't come. It's 2,000 years. That's plenty of time. Verse 9 answers the question, though. Why hasn't Jesus come back in judgment to set up his kingdom on earth? Verse 9 says, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Verse 15, again, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll look at the patience of the Lord is salvation. So to the question, why hasn't Jesus already come back, you know, just to show those mockers and those scoffers the reality of his promise? Well, it's because he's being patient. And it's because God is still saving people. It's because the Holy Spirit is still convicting people of the need to repent and believe the gospel and be forgiven, be restored to life. Right relationship with God through Christ by the Spirit. That's what's still going on. And you got to love that thought. You know, why hasn't why, why hadn't the, the door on the ark closed sooner than it did? Maybe because the last animal wasn't in. There's an ark. There's an ark of salvation. It's not full. And that's why God has delayed, if you will, Jesus' second coming. If you read Romans 9, um, you know, in theology we say God is simple. And that doesn't mean he's a simpleton. And it doesn't mean he's simplistic. But what it does mean is that he is fully and always only who and what he is. He's never more part of what he is. He's never less some element of his character. He is fully and always all that he is. So when you read Romans 9, and we're reading a passage about fire and judgment, and someone says, oh, hold on. I thought you said God was love, 1 John. I thought you said God was loving. And you say, well, God is love, and God is loving, and God is also just. And he's never less than just. This is why we always want to remind people, if, if you're talking about judgment and somebody's getting wigged out, you always go to the cross. Why is that? Because the love of God is demonstrated perfectly and fully in Jesus dying for sinners like us. Perfectly, the love of God on display. What else is on display? The justice of God. Because Jesus had to die the sinless for the sinful or God won't let any of us otherwise nice people into heaven, right? 
the justice of God perfectly on display at the cross, the love of God perfectly on display at the cross. Romans 9 says God glorifies himself in his judgment on the wicked. God glorifies himself in the perfection of his judgment on the wicked. And Romans 9 says God glorifies himself in his kindness and grace on the redeemed. He's perfect in everything he does. Can't be any less. So Peter's talking about the judgment aspect because that's what was being denied. And guys, that's denied again today. And you'll meet, you'll meet Christians who don't believe anyone's going to hell. You'll meet people that say they're trusting in Jesus and they don't think anyone comes under God's eternal judgment. And we're not reading the same Bible or not reading the same Bible with the same eyes. Listen to this, though. This is the, here's a distinction. If we say God's perfectly just and he's glorified in his perfect justice and we say God's perfectly merciful and he's glorified in his mercy... Can you really say that God delights in one more than the other? And I say, well, biblically, God does. Isaiah says that God, uh, judgment is God's strange work. It's not the thing that's most typical of him. Mercy is. Grace is. He delights in mercy and grace and salvation. Listen to this in Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel, you remember, he was an early captive out of Jerusalem. He's living in Babylon before Jerusalem's destroyed by the Babylonians. Jeremiah's there, you know, speaking God's word. The nation is hardened. But what does God say in part through Ezekiel? He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and live. In fact, if you go to Ezekiel 33.11, listen to this. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? That's the gospel. God delights in mercy and grace. And it's like the lemmings are running over the cliff and God says, turn back. Don't do it. And we keep going right over that cliff. So God will, will glorify himself perfectly in judgment, but he delights in mercy and grace. And the reason Jesus hasn't come back, guys, is because God is still saving. He's saving knuckleheads like you and me. You look back on your life and say, God saved me. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. So in our teaching here and conversations with friends and family, are we apart, getting back to the Gideons and the gospel and God's word, are we intentionally being a part of what God's doing in the world today? Now, Christ is building the church. You read a, an epistle like Ephesians, Jesus is building the church and members are growing up into Christ-like stature. Jesus is building the church, but guys, he's bringing people in. The church isn't full, just like the ark wasn't full. The church isn't full. God's still saving, and that means that one of the key things we're meant to be a part of prayerfully, intentionally, as regularly as God gives us the opportunity is conveying the truth of God's word to others and sharing the gospel because that's what God's doing. The delay of the second coming is so that God brings more people into his family and his kingdom. If we know Christ, are we making Christ known to others? If we're on the ark, have we told anybody there's a flood coming and there's a boat? 
Have we told someone that we have found the bread of life and you can eat the same meal I am and be fed and find real life? Are we doing with and for others what others did with and for us? Shared the gospel. If, you, if you've come to faith in Christ, somebody talked to you about Christ. And if you know the truth about Jesus, somebody guided you and you've been reading God's word. And that's what we're talking about being involved in still today. And friends, I want to be, I want to hasten to add this. On Sunday morning, when we pray up here, I assume that there's always people here who think they're Christians and they're not. And when, when we're talking about coming to faith and repentance in Christ, we're talking about people here too. You're not saved because of the place you sit on Sunday morning. You're not saved because your parents are saved. You're not a Christian. You're not going to heaven because of anything or anyone else other than I'm saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Guys, we, uh, we had a lovely friend uh, that used to visit this church. This is several years ago. She was in Kathy's Bible study. She was in our home a lot. And she was a professing Christian. And in all her interaction with her, it was, it was, she was a lovely person, truly. And it was a delight to interact with her. But you know what? She finished high school here in Topeka. She moved away to college. And it was not one to two months later, she wrote us a letter and said, I realized I wasn't a Christian. I just got saved. I just came to faith in Christ as Savior. That can be true in a church on Sunday morning, on any Sunday morning. So just, just that reminder, it's not just people out there that need Christ. We need Christ. And, and our hope of salvation is only Christ and his righteousness. It's not what we bring. We bring our sin. Jesus brings the atonement. That's all we bring is our need it's not who we are, it's not where we are, it's not who we're related to, it's not where we go on Sunday. So we don't assume because we're here we're saved. We don't assume that. I hope you won't assume that either. So I love this verse, Acts 2.21. Peter says this, he preached to the Jews, you crucified your Messiah. And it says their hearts are cut to the quick and they say, what, what do we do? And Peter says, well, be baptized in the name of Jesus. But he also says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the question is, have we called on the name of the Lord? And are we encouraging and inviting others to call on the name of the Lord for salvation? That's the deal. That's the deal. We're going to do something later after worship here, which I'm really... I'm enthusiastic about, I'm excited about, uh, to be sure. But until then, if you would, stand. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read a text from Acts 26 together. Father, you're the, the God of all life. Lord, all that's truly alive is in right relationship with you, and, and we are so thankful that you've reached down in grace and mercy, and in Jesus sacrificial death on the cross for our sins in his glorious resurrection, our resurrection, Lord. Our only plea to you for justification and life is Jesus. We thank you so much for him. Thanks, too, for your word, Lord. Would you inspire us? Would you encourage us? Would you exhort us? Would you raise us up to count important what you count important? And as we love and serve you, Lord, would you help us do so in no small measure by sharing the life giving, life-transforming message of the gospel and your word with others. For Christ's name and Christ's glory, amen.
Guys, let's read. This, uh, this was uh, Paul. This was what God said to Paul, and it, it applies at least in some measure to all of us as well. Let's read that together. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith 